Happy Sabbath. We are delighted that you once again have decided to tune in as we continue our look at the three angels message. That is the title of this quarterly's study. And we've been nibbling around the edges for the past few weeks. But today, finally, we get into uh, the primary text for our conversation for the rest of the quarter, looking at the first angel's message and his proclamation of the everlasting gospel that is the title will be in revelation chapter 14 joey's back and we're gonna ask him questions about how his vacation went but before all of that which i'm sure you're waiting with breathless anticipation for we're gonna invite you to pray god thank you for revealing who you are may our time with revelation be more than time with a book. May it encompass life with a person, the person of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Joey, you're back. How are you? Good to see you back. Good to have you back on this wonderful spring Sabbath. Oh, it's nice to be back. I mean, we loved we loved our trip. We got to go up back to Korea for mm. a little bit, and they had the turning of the cherry blossoms, which was... Mm beautiful it was really beautiful out there the weather was great but it's also nice to be home well it's good to have you back you've been missed um people and viewers said that uh the co-host that filled in for you was much prettier than you. <laughs> uh, in that case she's much prettier than I am as well i absolutely agree um, I, they didn't get any they didn't get any argument from me uh, but it's good to have you back because it's there is definitely something comforting about familiarity yeah. uh, which is i think the perfect segue into jumping into revelation uh the primary text that the that the lesson looks at <clears throat> starts in uh chapter 14 uh goes with uh begins in verse 6 goes all the way uh to verse uh 13 but um, I want to focus primarily just on that first angel's message, which is found in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who live on earth and to every tribe, uh, nation, tongue, and people. So John is seeing angels. The angels have the title for this lesson, The Everlasting Gospel, I guess uh, the first question that uh, our viewers have is, what is the everlasting gospel? Hmm. You know, that's, uh, it spends so much time on the everlasting gospel, the gospel message that Jesus came, he died, he resurrected, and because of that, we have an opportunity at new life. Um, we've talked about that message before. It's interesting, though, that I was reading um, Sigvi Tongstead's mm. um, commentary on this earlier, and 
he seems to take the opinion that that's not the gospel that, that John is referring to, that instead, he, because he doesn't use the article, the gospel, he's actually referring to just a good news message. It's an everlasting good news message, and it's a very important good news message, but a little bit different than what other New Testament writers write about. Is, is that the sense that you get? From the passage That's as well. what the Greek would seem to suggest, right? Uh, you think, for example, of passages like uh, the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus went around preaching and teaching the good news or the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Mm. And in every case where that appears, it appears, as you mentioned, and as Sigvi noted, with a definite article, to, mm. T-O, right? To evangelium, the gospel. In this case, that toe doesn't exist. It's mm. not there. Um, so really what, what seems to be a better translation of the original language, and I think this is where translations get, get us in trouble. And so on this issue, uh, with apologies to the General Conference uh, Sabbath School Division, we're going to ver- we're gonna have to vary a bit uh, from what the lesson talks about simply because it seems like the original language isn't pointing towards the gospel as we understand the gospel story. Uh, rather, the, God, uh, the message of the first angel is a message of eternal good news. Now, the NASB, uh, the NRSV, uh, I like their translation on this particular passage a bit better than I do the NIV. Mm. So <clears throat> the NRSV renders it having an eternal gospel. Hmm. Actually, I, I don't even like the, the term gospel. Um, mm-hmm. I, if, if, if I were to be translating it, I probably would say uh, having everlasting good news mm-hmm. or good news that are forever or good news that are that is unchanging. And we're going to dissect the passage a bit and talk about this uh, and why I think Sigvi's uh, reading of it and kind of what you started sharing and what I'm piggybacking on is probably a better way to connect with what uh, John has in mind. Yeah. And it seems to, beyond just the grammatical um, nuances, there there seems to be indication in the message of the text itself that this is not the gospel message that uh, Paul is talking about mm-hmm. that is found throughout the gospels, right? Um, because he doesn't talk about the resurrection or the death or Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the new life. That's He says his message is fear God and give him glory, verse 7, right? Because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. If this was that same God, you would expect him to say, Jesus has risen, right? He's risen indeed, like the message that we had during our our, our Easter celebration this past um, last week's um, Sabbath. But that's not what he says. He He talks about how God is the creator God, that he deserves to be worshiped, right? Um, and that the hour of the of judgment has come, yeah. which we don't always think of as being good news. But in this context, it seems like he's saying this is good news. So all, all those elements, I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit. We deeper. will. And then just, just talking a little bit more about the original construction. Mm-hmm. When we come to any text, when we read any story, there are these inherent biases that you possess that allow you to look at the story and then make these interpretive leaps. Mm -hmm. 
So when I'm trying to interpret Revelation 14, and difficult as the Greek is in uh, Revelation, because it's it's Greek written with a Semitic construct, mm. um, I get into the text and I see Evangelion, and I immediately think the gospel. And then I see crisis or crisis, and then I think judgment. Mm. That is an interpretive decision that somebody made. If you're being literal to what the original language says, it's, and I saw another angel flying in midheaven having an eternal message of good news to preach to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And he said with a voice, fear God and give him glory because a critical hour is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so... When we think about God inflicting judgment upon us, I think that's where the disconnect occurs. Mm. And what I appreciated about the commentary that you were reading this week is that it it stays in line with the with the bigger narrative mm. that Revelation is trying to to make. And the narrative isn't isn't that the book is about God's judgment upon us. Mm. Rather, it's our judgment upon who God is. Mm. And so what is actually being revealed throughout the book, that thing that is being revealed isn't the signs and the times and the places for the parousia or the second coming. What is being revealed is the character of God and the character of the beast. Wow. And if you look at it from that broader narrative, then Revelation 14 serves in the economy of the story as a direct counteraction to the three woes that appear in Revelation chapter 8, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this appearance of Revelation chapter 8. Three times you hear the word awful or terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, You you have this this feeling that something really, really bad is going to happen. Revelation 8, 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a, uh, with a loud voice, woe, 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 or awful, 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 those who dwell on earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Mm-hmm. So there's this message of woe and of uh, fear. And then you have this reaction then in Revelation 14. There's another angel that appears in midair. And this time the message is a message of good news. Yeah, that's so powerful. Um, just wanted to come back to your point about judgment. Yeah, I had never heard of, thought of it that way before, that that the judgment that he's referring to is not necessarily focused on humanity, but humanity focused on God. Mm-hmm. Like who is the character of God? Who is God? And the good news is that he is someone who deserves to be trusted and, mm-hmm. and deserves to be worshiped. Mm-hmm. And that is such a powerful message because we've been reading in our staff meeting, we've been, or staff worship, we've been reading the Peacemaker book, which I know has been a, a real blessing for you as well in your ministry. And that Peacemaker book, uh, in it, he talks about how trust in God is the foundation for us to be able mm. to act as peacemakers. Like if we don't really believe that God is in control, it's hard for us to take those leaps of faith mm-hmm. into people and and to put ourselves out there to make reconciliation. Because recon- making reconciliation, offering forgiveness, all of those things, it's it's 
it exposes us. It exposes us mm. to hurt and pain. And, and yet we can do that as followers of God if we believe that we have a powerful, and not just a powerful, but a good God, mm. right? So if God is good and God is powerful, then we can extend ourselves out there knowing that he is able to make sure that all those mm. outcomes are going to work out right. Um, I forget what other book I was, I was reading another book this morning and he, he was saying that um, the message, I was my devotional for this morning, he was saying that that because we have a good and powerful God, if things aren't right yet, things aren't over yet. Mm. He says the only time that things will ever be completely over is when things are made right again. Mm. And that really is the message of, of, of God, right? That And the message of the first angel is that God is a good God who's going to make things, I mean, that's the that's sort of reading into it later on, but that he's going to eventually make things right. And so he is a God who deserves to be worshipped mm. and probably the only God who ever deserved to be worshipped. That's, I think that that links perfectly well with what you have in the text before you. As, as we said, if you just take the text and try as hard as you can to limit uh, the superimpositions that you want to place upon the text, you get to uh, an interpretation that is really in line with what you're sharing. Trust in God because God is in control. The rationale for fearing God and giving him honor because at this critical time, which is what the angel is saying, fear God, give him honor, the time is critical. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Mm -hmm. And by de facto, what this creates is it creates this division between what God does and what the serpent does, mm -hmm. what God does and what the beast does, what God does and what the enemy does. God has the power to create. The enemy is that is, is the one who comes, right, to destroy. Mm -hmm. God is the one who makes the springs of water. Mm -hmm. And if you look forward, um, Throughout the book of Revelation, the enemy will t or the accuser will try to make blood uh, springs, but they're they're not of life giving water. They're mm -hmm. they're of violence and blood. Uh, God then uh, is is creator, sustainer, and the producer of life. And then if you look back at some of the things that define those people who are against God. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, mm -hmm. where you have kind of these two camps, right? The nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants and prophets and the saints to those who fear your name, the small and the great. So you have on the one hand, those who fear the name of God, mm -hmm. uh, who are doing exactly what uh, the first angel is commanding. And then you have verse 18, uh, those uh, the last half of that verse and to those and to destroy those who destroy the earth mm. and so you have God the creator and God's antithesis who is the destroyer and so what what I start what I think starts appearing in the book is this really interesting dualism that apocalyptic literature is good at drawing and that is uh, Jesus, Jesus and the Lamb's narrative of life, 
And it's a paradoxical narrative because life is achieved by the death of the lamb. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the beast's uh, narrative of death, where many, many will die and perish as a result of believing in this false narrative that is propagated by the beast. Wow. Yeah. And that's such a good point. This idea that the author, John, wants his readers to understand that the the devil, Satan, whatever you want to call him, Lucifer, is is the anti-God, mm -hmm. right? He's the opposite of God. God is the giver of life. He's the destroyer of life. He's God is the creator of all of creation. Satan is the one that destroys creations. And, and those who follow each of these are also aligned with those philosophies and those though, that mission um, is something that is present throughout the book of Revelation. That's so powerful. And then we, we've, we've talked about how closely linked these ideas, right, mm -hmm. are to the language of the Old Testament. You read the Psalms and you have throughout the Psalms, particularly those Psalms of orientation, mm -hmm. you have the sense of God as creator and the fact that God is both creator and sustainer of life. That is good news. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think what John is doing is John is looking around at both his immediate context and the context of the world itself, which is just plagued by death and destruction, devastation, uncertainty. And he says, how do I, in the midst of this world that is so uncertain, continue to affirm the good character of God. The mm. character of God is merciful and just. And, and he comes back to, I think, an act that I find really refreshing within, within the Christian tradition, and that is worship. Mm. The response to the world's uncertainty in John's mind, the way that we affirm uh, God's character is through worship mm. and so worship then is more than just it, it it's more than just this communal coming together to reflect on who god is what it while being that it also and probably more important at least in john's mind is that worship is a defiant act of resistance in a world that belongs to death and to the beast to say we will believe in this critical hour in the God of life. Wow. And we will go boldly and tell a world that has become really nihilistic that in spite of everything, we still have good news to tell. Wow. And that's a message that's so appropriate today, right? I mean, it's not just John's. John, John when he's writing this book, there's a lot to be depressed about in his society, in his world, about his his church. Um, there's a lot of discouragement as he's as he is in the island of Pat Patmos in exile, um, and yet John doesn't stand alone in that. Um, there is a sense that all of us could become nihilistic, like you right. said, that with this just have this very negative view of what's possible or what just have a, a sense of hopelessness, especially, I mean, in our community, in our local community, we face just so much tragedy over this past, oh, since December, November of this past year, of last year, all the way extending to, to um, 
the past few weeks where it, I don't know how it could have gotten sharper, but that pain even got even sharper. And, and yet it is in moments like this that we turn to the book of Revelation, right? I think it was Zach, Zach, um, our, our tech guy who's been, her media man who's been handling, who handles all the back behind the scene things and makes us look good. He said, um, maybe people are so interested in Revelation right now because things are falling apart. And that really is true. That That's that's the message of Revelation. When things are falling apart, mm. is there any good in this world? And the message of Revelation is a resounding yes. And that's why the message is directed not to those who are inhabiting other worlds or to those who are witnesses of the war that, explode, that exploded in heaven. The message is for those, to, for those who live on the earth. Hmm. And for John, in John's dualist, obviously there's the spatial reality to earth, but that's not what John is talking about. Duh. Uh, we live on earth and the message that the angel gives from uh, midair is to those of us who live on earth. But John is, is a little more pointed when he uses that phrase within John's dualism. The earth is is the realm that belongs to the enemy mm -hmm. the earth is the realm of chaos and destruction and devastation the earth is uh what quakes and trembles at the sight of the beast and the dragon and the false prophet and in and two people in the earth mm -hmm. are living on the earth god says good news i am still in control and so I think that then the message of the first angel is intended for a particular audience. And that is why sometimes when we take the focus that uh, some people have taken and to a degree that the lesson took this week, although I think there were fantastic insights from it, the reading becomes a bit triumphalistic. Mm. And the book isn't written for people that are winning. The, the book is written for people that have lost and lost deeply, mm -hmm. that are suffering and suffering mightily, that are being kept down and kept down brutally. And in that moment, you hear the voice from midair saying, and this message is for you who have experienced death, illness, devastation, hunger, uh, political instability, war, a depression, divorce, uh, the fraying of relationships, economic and financial uncertainty, mm. the message is for you. In spite of all the evidence before you, mm. God is still in control. Wow. So it truly is a message of hope for those mm. who feel lost. It's a without any other phrase to describe it it's an evangelistic mm, message yeah. right it has it's a good news message yeah. maybe not framed in the same way that that or formulated the same way that that we typically think of the evangelistic message but this is a message of hope and the message of hope you know a lot of a lot of the worship of god in 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 the bible Worshiping God is framed around two of God's mighty acts. One is creation and the other is redemption, right? Mm -hmm. That God created us and he redeemed us. And 
typically the the New Testament um, gospel message is about redemption, that God has redeemed us. And yet John, in a very Old Testament mm-hmm. manner, because this is the language that is flow, that that flows throughout the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, especially in the Pentateuch, mm-hmm. that he deserves to be worshipped because he is the creator God as well. And there's that strong link. And I, I did like how the author of this week's lesson made that link also to the fourth commandment, right? Um, of that is the basis of us keeping the Sabbath as well, is that that worship of God flows from the fact that he is the creator mm-hmm. God. He is not only the redeemer God, he's also the creator God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Um... That's, I think, really powerful, and it's it's really profound that you are linking it, not just to the experience of Israel's songbook, but to the experience of Israel's covenantal tradition. Yeah, um, it's impossible to read fourteen six without thinking of Genesis. Mm. Um, it's impossible to read uh, the notion of the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and the springs of water and that partic- those particular divisions without thinking about the forming and filling that God does in his creative act. Uh, but then it's also impossible to think about it without thinking of liberation and the Exodus account. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a, that is something that often goes unmentioned precisely because when, when, uh, we read Revelation from a triumphalistic uh, lens when we use a hermeneutic of triumphalism. So when we interpret a revelation as the victors, we forget that this text is a deeply, deeply subversive uh, text. Mm. It's written subversively because it's written for for those that are below from those who are below. So think about what he's saying. He's saying, look, you may think that kingdoms and these powers and these principalities, you may think that those are in charge. Guess what? They're not. Um, There is hope amidst hopelessness. And how subversive is that? Mm. How it's not this empty hope that's just like, um, oh well, you know, if I if I wish upon a star, mm. it's hope that is subversive. It's hope that acts. It's hope in John's mind. This hope demands a human response. That is why they're being called to worship, and so. To hope isn't this passive experience of those who have given up. Mm. To hope is to begin the creative process of making this, this reality that is inhabited by beastly powers more lamb-like. And the way that you do that, at least in John's mind, mm. is to worship. So imagine what would happen if our worship services were these exercises in subversion, in subversive hope. Wow. That worship is an act of subversion. So what would that look like? How would we, how would we live out that, the practice of worship in a subversive manner? Mm. I think, I think it all has to do with the stories that we tell Mm. to, to stay 
to stay in John's mind and to, to try to use John's language. For John, the narrative of the Lamb is subversive. But it's subversive in a different way. See, when we think about revolution and subversion, we think about uh, guerrilla armies uh, fighting and then retreating into the mountains and hiding, uh, carrying on this, uh, these campaigns that last years. That's not John's idea of subversion. John's idea of subversion is to say the only way that you can expose the damage of sin and the narrative of death that the beast is peddling is by showing it in all its grotesque brutality. And that's the purpose of the lamb, right? The lamb shows the narrative of the beast in its grotesque brutality. So the question I think might help answer what does worship as an act of subversion look like i think the first place we we start answering that question is we ask ourselves what kind of narratives what kind of beast-like narratives are prevalent in the world around us hmm. and are those narratives being baptized into the church by adding pseudo-religious language to them. Mm -hmm. In other words, our culture says, your influence is contingent on the amount of followers that you have, mm -hmm. right? I believe that's a beastly narrative mm -hmm. because my value isn't contingent on how many people follow me. My value is contingent on who I follow. But when we say that our church is so, then we take this narrative and we appropriate it to the church. And we say, ah, oh, my church is successful based on the head count. Mm -hmm. How many people are coming or watching our services or viewing us online? Mm -hmm. And when we judge success in that way, mm. we've adopted a beastly narrative wow. and we've baptized it into Christianity. And that's not subversive. Mm. Wow. You know, you said it quietly. But I, so I, I think it, it deserves repeating. You said, my value is not dependent on how many people follow me, but who I follow. Mm. That is such a powerful, powerful thought. And which is so countercultural mm -hmm. to our society, right? Where, where people are constantly trying to, how can I expand my influence? Mm -hmm. And that basically means how can I get more and more people mm -hmm. to listen to what I have mm -hmm. to say? And you're saying expanding influence actually comes not from checking how many people are following me, but making sure that I am following God. Mm -hmm. And that 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 reversal that you're talking about, we we talked about this during the first week's lesson a little bit. You probably talked about last week's lesson as well, because this theme is found throughout the book of Revelation, that there is a reversal here mm -hmm. of how things are done, how the victory is won, right? That it is the lamb that is slain who who is becomes the victor, not the not just the lion of Judah, but the lamb that was slain, and that's how he overcomes this ferocious beast, which is mind-boggling and doesn't make any kind of sense at all. And yet, that's the message of Revelation, and that's the message of Scripture. And yet, a lot of times we use, like you said, beastly methods to gain success, mm. to expand our influence, and. I think what you're also alluding to this this triumphalism 
if it enters our worship worship then we're also worshiping god but in a beastly manner mm -hmm. that's that a right? really good way of putting it um so what does that look like well um dallas willard uh who we both read and love once said uh let me hear the music of a congregation and i will tell you their theology mm. um and in essence willard was talking about more than just the songs that we sing he was talking about our liturgy as a whole mm. um, liturgy itself means right the work of the people and so to to worship is the work of the people that is what we were created for that is uh the great great confession of protestantism right the number one aim of man sorry ladies it was before gender inclusiveness um the one aim of man is to worship god mm. that is what we were created for this is 500 years 600 years ago that uh, that it was written the problem is often we don't worship we don't believe that the purpose of liturgy that the work of the people is to worship god we believe that the work of the people is to conquer the world for god mm. and so we go out uh, as you know holy appointed soldiers to share the gospel but what we're actually sharing is we're sharing a worldview that says we are privileged over you and we've figured the world out and you need to follow us. Mm -hmm. And that is a beastly narrative. Mm -hmm. To say that, uh, to say you are saved by grace alone and then to operate in a religious system that, that, that peddles guilt and shame, that is a beastly narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what, what I think we're trying to say is you have to ask yourselves, what are the stories that the world is telling? And those stories have become so commonplace to us that often we incorporate them in, in, our, in our worship, in our liturgy, and we forget what, what the purpose for our creation was. Wow. Wow. That's <laughs> so powerful. So then worship should be the primary practice of the people of mm -hmm. God. Um, and it's true. I mean, unconverted Christians, and I'm using that term very loosely, but unconverted Christians have done so much more damage to the cause of Christ mm -hmm. than if they had done nothing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's and, a really good point. And I'm not, I, I, and I say I'm using it loosely because all of us at times can be an un, unconverted mm -hmm. Christian in, in that we can be not under the rule of God, that we're not actually under the, the, the humility, humble leading of, 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 of the father, right? Like unless we are under his, his will and his control and having his mindset and his viewpoint of the world. There's so many times that we can do so much damage and hurt and pain in this world. I've done that so mm -hmm. many times. There are times when my relationship with God is not where it should be, whether it's because I've gotten busy and I haven't spent that time with God or or I'm going through things in my my, my life that has twisted my viewpoint of, of the world, that I've done things and said things in moments that have done untold damage, mm -hmm. right? And that I have had to go back and confess and, and plead for forgiveness for 
because of that. But all of us have that potential, which is why it's so important. The more we are doing the work of God, the more that we need to be worshiping God, that we have to have be under the rule of God. And by worship, I don't I don't think we're talking about a worship service, like attending right. a worship service, but more that God is the God that we worship, right? They say that humans are built to worship. So we worship, we're all going to worship something, whether it's worshiping football or or money or power or uh, a, a particular relationship or whatever. We're, we all worship something. And the message of, of Revelation 14, the first angel's message is really the creator is the only God who deserves to be worshiped. Mm. And unless we are making him that number one spot in our lives and always making sure that he's the number one spot in our lives and that we're listening to him all the time, we can go out and do a lot of pain mm. and a lot of damage to the world around us when we're trying to do good things for him. Yeah, that's... Wow, that is so well stated. And I think that's where we we com where confession has to be part of our worship yeah. let go. Confession is part of our liturgy. Confession is part of the work of the people. Mm -hmm. Um so uh, a few weeks ago I received this pamphlet in the mail. Um and it was an invitation to attend a, a church um an adventist church and then there was kind of uh it was a revelation uh seminar and there was um if i filled out the card that i would send it in and i would get a great controversy and um and that was evangelism hmm. i think we need to come we i think we as and I, I don't want to speak for 21 million Adventists in the world, but I will speak for myself. I've done that. I've gone up and said to people, look, this is the story of Scripture. It's the story of this great battle. And I know that God is in charge. And let me show you uh, that God has a people come be part of us. That's not worship. At least not worshiping the one that made the heavens and the earth in this critical time in human history. Worship uh, is unassuming. It, uh, it, le it, it shows strength in weakness. It is service-oriented. Um, it is selflessly and relentlessly loving. That's that's the picture that John is revealing. And we're going to keep talking about this through the quarter. That is the picture that John reveals to Revelation. And so I I think the, the hope is that Adventism isn't going to give you the answers for why there is devastation in the world. Mm. Because that's trying, that's, to assume that we have the answers is to assume that we have God's knowledge. And to do that is to participate in a beastly story. Mm. Adventism wow. is going to say, we don't know. 
but even in but even amidst all this evidence we subversively affirm that god is in control and the ultimate act of subversion is we do we come and we worship as a people even in the midst of our suffering wow that's true subversion um i think that's what the first angel is calling us to do wow i love what you said there to assume that we have the knowledge is the same that we have the answers is to assume that we have God's knowledge and and to take that one step um, further to to assume that we have God's knowledge is to assume that we are in control mm. like we and that is actually a lot of times now that I think about it that has been my mentality um, in my particular brand of Adventism um, has been my mentality in the past that well, people are going to come to us because we have the knowledge, right? When things are falling apart and everything, we're going, to, we're going to be able to stand firm because we have the knowledge and people are going to come to us because we have the answers, right? And yet, um, what we see throughout scripture is not that the pe people don't go, they're not drawn to the people of God because they have answers, but because they are exuding the character of God, right? They may not be able to completely answer why devastation is happening. It's, you know, we always point, historians always point to the turning point for Christianity where it became, it really took hold in the Roman Empire at the time when there was plagues in Rome, right? And the Christians, um, Christians remained there caring for the sick. Not only their sick, but everybody else is sick. And that they said was the turning point for Christianity and their reputation. But people didn't weren't drawn to the Christians because they had answers. They were drawn to the Christians because of how they loved, mm -hmm. right? And that's that's what Jesus says, that people will know you are my followers, you are my disciples, mm -hmm. because you love, because of how you love, you love like I love. And um and 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 yet for so long in my particular view of Adventism, it wasn't that. It was, it was okay, as long as what people will be drawn to us is if I understand Revelation and Revelation is going to point me to understanding how the future is going to turn out. And if I give those answers to people, they're going to want to be a mm -hmm. part of this. And yes, Revelation does give, give some answers in that it gives the answer that even in devastation, there's hope, right? right? That's an answer that Revelation gives. It gives the answer that the only way to survive and be victors in the end, in the midst of all of this tragedy and loss is to follow the way of the lamb, mm. right? And not the way of the beast. Mm. It does give those kinds of answers, but it doesn't tell exactly when things are going to turn right. out. It doesn't tell exactly how things are going to turn out. There's going to be, even for those who have studied, those of us who have studied the book of Revelation and know every single word, and I'm not one of those, but know every single word by heart, even for those people, there is going to be curveballs. Because every single time God has acted, there's been curveballs. Right. There's been surprises, not just for people who weren't studying scripture, but even for those who mm -hmm. were deeply immersed mm -hmm. in scripture, there were curveballs. Mm -hmm. So what makes us think that that will be any different for us at the end of time? There's going to be curveballs. It's not about knowing how everything turns out, but it is about knowing how to follow the lamb in the midst of everything all the turmoil that we know is to come. 
That is true worship. That is what John is saying. So, in our brand of Adventism, the brand that I practiced for many years, um, it went like this. The hour of judgment is coming, flee to, flee to the mountains. And then I read it. The story where Jesus appeared, where the story in the Gospels that best expresses the majesty and the glory of Jesus as the creator of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, the story at uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm -hmm. So something happens and Jesus changes. Mm -hmm. And you see, you see Jesus as this God. Fear God. The hour of judgment is here. He created the heavens and the earth and, you see, and the disciples see it. And Peter says, this is amazing. This is amazing because we're on your side, Jesus. So let's just stay here. Let's stay here on the mountain. And Jesus says, no, how dare you? We can't stay on the mountain. There's people shrieking. There's demons shrieking in the valley. We got to go down. The message of the first angel isn't Let's go up into the mountain. Mm -hmm. Liturgy, worship the work of the people is exactly what you're saying, to follow the lamb. And where does the lamb go? Well, he goes into the valley where, where boys are being hurt and demons are shrieking and everything is dark mm -hmm. and it seems like all hope is lost. That's where Jesus goes. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the people go. What I find most fascinating is Christians in the first century didn't become famous because they ran. Mm. They became famous because they walked into the Colosseum. I don't know where we got this idea of ascetic separation as the invitation that Revelation calls us to. Um, but that's not true worship. Mm. True worship is to do exactly what you've called us to do today, Joey, and that is by this, they will know that you are my followers by how you love one another. Mm -hmm. And it seems really simple. So I, I wonder why it's so difficult to do. Yeah. You know, what you'd say about fleeing to the mountains, it's true. I, that message at its best, at its best is is okay let's let go of the earthly things that hold us in it, that kind of impulse that ascetic impulse that you're talking about of okay i i'm fleeing to the mountains because i'm i'm saying that nothing here is holding me down like i don't i don't have to stay and protect my home and make sure that i nobody else can i'm, I'm willing to let that go because i know if there's something much better waiting for me in heaven. That impulse, I think there's there are there's, there's there are a lot positive. of value in that. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of value in that. But the escape escapism tendency of let's take care of our own and make sure that we're safe. Um and so that yeah, but but we're gonna abandon everybody else behind. That is not found in scripture. No. Right? That's even Noah. He kept preaching until God said, it's time to go. You got to go. You got to go. It's time to go now. And God, and that time did come. But, but Noah kept preaching to that moment, right? And, and yeah, that, that seems whatever 
that I love the transfiguration story that you told. Like Jesus comes back down off the mountain. There is a there are moments for mountaintop reflection, mm -hmm. but it always should lead us back into the valleys to follow him because that is where we truly can do the work of God. And I think this, and this is I, the last comment, um, to learn how to do this now is really, really important. To learn how to worship in that way because there will be a time when the call that comes is going to be fallen, fallen as Babylon, mm -hmm. right? These structures and these systems that promote the beastly way of interpreting and telling stories, they can't last forever. They collapse. And when these structures and systems collapse, there's a lot of disorientation. Mm -hmm. And in those spaces, what you need is a humble church to step in and pick up the pieces. Wow. And if, you don't, if we don't learn how to do that now, mm -hmm. When the second angel comes and rings, we're, we're going to fail. Wow. Wow. That's so powerful. So start practicing. Start being worshipful people today. Why don't you pray for us, Julie, as we finish? Our good and gracious God, sometimes we like to run ahead of, of you. We try to do things faster than you would like things to be done. It is sometimes the hardest thing to allow you to be God, to say you are God and we are not. And yet that is the message of this first angel, to remember that only you, the creator of this universe, are worthy to be called God, are worthy to be worshipped. So let us make you the center, the focus of our lives, is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved friends, God is in control. That's the only answer we can give you. But in the end, isn't that the only answer that matters? Isn't that the ultimate good news? May God bless you until we meet again.